uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Esther, uh, which is in the Old Testament, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther. If you get to Job and Psalms, you've gone too far, go back to the left, and you can always use the table of contents in the front of your Bible to help you out. So this morning... Uh, we begin a brand new nine-week series through the book of Esther. It's a series that we've entitled Faith Among the Faithless. That title will, will make itself more obvious as we travel through this series. Now, I don't know what you know about the book of Esther, uh, but it is not your atypical Bible story. This story of this beautiful Jewish girl born into exile, born in Persia, who marries the infamous King Xerxes, who otherwise is known in our uh, in the book of Esther as King Ahasuerus. It's a, it's a Hebrew name. Um, she bravely uses her royal influence to save her native people from annihilation. It is, a, it is an exhilarating story. It is also a scandalous story. Uh, wild parties, sex, money, lies, conspiracies, executions, it's all here in the book of Esther. But do you know what's not here in the book of Esther? God's name. God is not mentioned once in ten chapters. The only other book that does not mention God is Song of Solomon. Not only is there no mention of God in this book of the Bible... But there is no religious conversation or activity except for maybe two verses. In chapter 4, verse 16, Esther calls the people to a three-day fast. She doesn't even say to pray. We can only assume that fasting meant also praying. And then two verses earlier, her cousin Mordecai suggests that help from the Jews, because the Jews are going to get in trouble here in a, in, in, in a couple weeks, Help for the Jews will come from somewhere else if you do not rise up to help them. And we can only assume that that eludes to God. That is it. Those are the only two conversations or interactions that really point us to something spiritual. Because of this, theologian Martin Luther, he was so discomforted by this book of the Bible, he he thought it should be removed. Yeah struck from the canon of scripture and and many other theologians since him and before him have expressed their discomfort they suggest the reason why the book is actually so secular and so immoral in nature is because god's nowhere to be found in it so why on earth are we studying for nine weeks the book of esther Why on earth are we looking at a character who in more ways than one embraced the pagan culture around her rather than resisting it? Like Daniel, for instance. We can read about Daniel's story in the book of Daniel. He was also a Jew born into exile. He was also surrounded by a pagan culture, but he did not budge from his Jewish convictions and it earned him a trip to the den of lions. We don't see that sort of Daniel-esque moral uprightness in the book of Esther. We see a girl who looks a lot more like the pagan Persians than she does the Jewish people of God. In fact, Esther is not even her Jewish name. 
Her Jewish name, as we learn in chapter 2, verse 7, is Hadassah. Esther is a Persian name that she has taken. And see, this should tell us something. The concealing of her Jewish name ought to give us a clue that she is concealing and has been concealing her Jewish identity altogether. Esther has been blending into the landscape of Persia, not standing out, not standing up for her convictions. Rather, she has been playing it safe. And the reason why we're doing a series on Esther is because how relatable is that? So many of us in the church, including myself, more often identify with Esther's way of life than a Daniel. Now, before we move into this text, which this morning we're going to look at the entirety of chapter 1, we've got to set up a little bit of, of biblical history to understand kind of a, a bit of, of what we're looking at here within the story of the Bible. So uh, uh, some of this morning is going to feel a little teachy, a little lectury. We've got, we've got a lot of ground to cover because not only are we introducing a series, but we've we got to put ourselves into, into thinking um, in, in the era of, of, of Jewish exile in Persia. We've got to get our minds into this space. And so why are God's people, the Jews, even in Persia? Why are they in exile? So we need to zoom out to about 30,000 feet. And we're going to go super basic because not everybody in here knows the story of the Bible. So we have a man named Abraham. God promises to make a nation through him. And he starts that nation by giving Abraham a son, Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. The patriarchs of the Jews who have lots of children in Egypt and then they began to form the nation of Israel. It's come to known as the, the Jews. Moses leads them out of Egypt. Joshua leads them into a homeland that becomes Israel. A little bit later, a, a king is appointed, King Saul. But he did not fear the Lord. And so King David, a man after God's own heart, replaced King Saul. And then Solomon, David's son, replaced him as king after him. And then there's a king, King Rehoboam, after Solomon. He was Solomon's son. And it's at the beginning of King Rehoboam's reign where the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms. They split into a northern kingdom that maintains the name Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. And inside Judah is Jerusalem. On the whole, the southern kingdom did not have great kings. But God makes this amazing promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7 to King David. Before David was off the throne, God promises that from Judah would come another king who would reign forever. He would be a better king. Hold on to that. Hold on to the idea of a better king coming. The Jewish people held on to it. They remembered this promise even when the southern kingdom, Judah, is conquered by the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar and deported to Babylon around 600 B.C. This is what it means to live in exile. The Jewish people who once lived in the southern kingdom of Judah were forced to live thousands of miles east away from their homeland, away from their holy city, Jerusalem, in Babylon. 
But even in exile in Babylon, the Jews remembered God's promise that one day God would send a better forever king. And so in Babylon, the Jews, roughly 70 years later, Babylon was conquered by the Persian king, Cyrus the Great. And the Persian kings were a bit more relaxed than the Assyrian and Babylonian kings. Cyrus gave all of the Jews in exile the opportunity to return to their holy city, to return to their homeland. And in obedience, obedience to God, many Jews did return back to Judah and back to Jerusalem. But many did not. Many Many of the Jews living now in in foreign exile, they got acclimated to exile. They actually became accustomed to living in a pagan society far away from the holy city of Jerusalem where they should have returned. In fact, many Jews, when Cyrus the Great overtook Babylon, many Jews even moved further east, away from Jerusalem to the Persian wintertime capital, Susa. Now, this is the setting for the, for the book of Esther. It all takes place in the Persian capital of Susa. Now, among the Jews living in Susa, guess who? Esther and her older cousin, who also happens to be her guardian. We'll learn more about this in the coming weeks. His name is Mordecai. Now, these two uh, main characters, if you will, are not seen In today's passage, they're not they're not even mentioned in today's passage. So chapter one, as we're about to read, begins by showcasing the king of Persia, Ahasuerus. But this name was a name given to him by the Jews. The history books refer to him as King Xerxes. That is his well-documented Persian name. He is the grandson of Cyrus the Great, who ushered the Jews into uh, Persian captivity and and offered them to go home. Uh, He is also the son of King Darius, who, if you guys are history buffs, King Darius was the one who lost to the Greeks at the Battle of Marathon, where we get the name Marathon, because that soldier ran 26 miles home to tell everybody that, we won, we beat the Persians. Do you remember? No? All right, just me. Just, Just one history nerd in the room this morning, no problem. All right, without any further ado... Hopefully in a shotgun blast, we we, we have a little bit of a scope of how the Jews have gotten to Persia. And now we're going to get a a, a glimpse of Persia this morning. Would you follow along as I read the entire chapter, yes, of Esther uh, chapter 1. Here we go. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces... In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Medea and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. 
There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Biztha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abaktha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Mekumen, the seven princes of Persia and Medea, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? Because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt. Since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Medea who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This, pleased the, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, even, even this, we believe, is your word inspired, profitable, Lord, to convict us, to educate us, to transform us, Lord, to uh, the likeness of Christ. 
We ask that you would do just that in our time now. Help us to understand this and to see you in it, to love you more, and to grow more like Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. That was a mouthful. Do we need to take a breather? (laughs) I do. What we see in Esther chapter 1, if I could make the simplest outline possible, and if you are a note taker, these will be my three points. What we see in Esther chapter 1, number one, an insecure king. Number two, an insubordinate queen. And number three, an invisible people of God. I will, of course, explain what I mean by those things. But I believe that's what we see, and let's dive in. Number one, an insecure king. You probably just read that, as did I, thinking there is nothing about this king that seems insecure. After all, he sits on top of the largest empire the world has ever seen, the ancient world, from India to Ethiopia. Spanned thousands of miles, 127 unique provinces we see. The Persian Empire was so vast that the world at large thought it to be ruled by a god. And even Ahasuerus himself thought it was ruled by a god. He thought he was a god. Just look at the party he throws for himself. For 180 days, does anybody know? Six months. That's a party. For six months, he wines and dines his nobles, his governors, his officials in the court of his royal palace, parading before them. He displays his absolutely limitless wealth. It wasn't without reason. This wasn't just for fun. Ahasuerus had a motive. A little bit of history helps us to understand why. His father had just recently, not long ago, lost at the Battle of Marathon to the Greeks. Ahasuerus' ego is stinging, as was his father's. This party is a rally to drum up the support of his military leaders on his quest for revenge. He was plotting war. And if you know the Battle of 300 and Thermopylae, that's the war he is drumming up support for right here. And what better way to drum up support by reminding all of your military leaders that you're a god. In fact, Everyone in the capital should be reminded of this, right? So in verse 5, the guest list expands to all of the commoners of the city. So for six months, it's the nobles. For seven days, everyone is welcome into the palace court to party. Everyone in Susa would have enjoyed the finest food and wine money could buy in the court, the garden court of the palace. In fact, in the garden court, Historians say that every species of plant and animal in the known world was on live display. It was like a zoo. And it was held up by 36 marble columns, solid marble columns, that stood 70 feet high, furnished with gold couches. I mean, we have Ikea couches, and we're pretty stoked about that. These were gold And draperies from the finest fabric, every fixture was wrapped in some sort of gold or studded with jewels. And then, to give us a glimpse into the moral character of this party, 
We read in verse 8 that according to Ahasuerus, there was only one rule. What was it? There are no rules. There is no compulsion. Meaning, you don't have to drink only when the king drinks, because that was normally a rule. That was normally a legislated rule. You come to party with the king, you only drink when he drinks, but every time he drinks, you drink. Now, at this party, you could drink as much as you possibly could. Have, there is no compulsion. You do you, and if there's anything else your body desires to do, indulge it. Verse 8, the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. You know who that staff of the palace would have been? Members of the king's harem. Women of the night. Now remember, the women of the officials, all the ladies are having a feast with Vashti in another part of the palace. All the wives are in a different room. So here, let's put our minds on for a second. We have a palace court full of drunk men partying for seven days, separate from their wives. The king's staff are hand and foot ordered to give any man anything he desires. You do the math. According to ancient historians, these parties that could sometimes number up to 70,000 people, these parties were so dark, it was said that the devil himself was in attendance. For a hazardous, being king of an empire wasn't enough. He wanted to be God. He thought He was God. And P.S., this is not the first time this has happened in Scripture. In fact, if we take a lot of the pomp and circumstance out of the picture, what was the core issue at stake when Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden? They weren't content with their role as king and queen, as stewards of creation, Just like Lucifer before them, they were not content. They wanted to be their own gods. And so they disregarded the the command that God gave in the garden not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Do we not see, you have to see the similarity here. This striving for God status is intertwined in the fallen human DNA. We, ourselves, you and me, in Worcester, Ohio, we are no different, apart from God's grace, we are no different than Adam and Ahasuerus. Their fallen blood courses through our veins. Apart from the grace of God, the only thing that that spares us from the level of self-exaltation we see in Ahasuerus, the only thing that spares us from that is money. Is it not? And so, you know, here in in Worcester, we have to get a bit creative. We have to be gods on a smaller budget, don't we? Deep down, apart from the grace of God, we are all a hazardous, right? Because do we not all desire control? Do we not all want to do things our way? We don't want to be told no. That's why... Most of us just take out an extra credit card or we go 
you know, quit this job. I don't want to be told no here. I want to go to, you know, I'm going to go work here or go to a different church because that's the thing these days. It seems churches prey upon our desire to not hear the word no, but to just be enforced. You do you, you special child of God. Look at the catering that many churches do now to just make everyone comfortable and happy and there's a cup holder in your lazy boy. Look. Are we not being treated as little gods? I'll revoke my membership if the paint in the sanctuary doesn't go the way I think it should. The color that I want. I mean, shoot, look at the way so many of us raise our kids to believe that no one can tell them no. I mean, I am the product of the millennial generation who was told, you can be and do anything you want to be and do. People like me needed to be told that we could not be astronauts. And we needed to stop being given gold stars for everything that we did. Because now we have a generation of millennials who really can't even hold down a job because someone told them no. And yeah, I am bashing the millennials this morning. Get a job. We don't want to be told no. Just look at what happens when a Hazarus is told no by Queen Vashti. And this is where we have a bit of an overlap between points one and two, okay? The points one and two aren't so clear this morning, but I'm just throwing that on. Points one and two right now, okay? Insecure king, insubordinate queen. Let's, we're in both of those right now. Because it's an insubordinate queen that really begins to expose the insecurity of the king as if that much hasn't been obvious already. Ahasuerus is like, come into my house. Look at all of my toys. Will you like me? Right? We read in verse 10, the king gets exceptionally drunk. Whoever wrote this, whether it was Mordecai or another Jew, was very kind by saying the heart of the king was merry. He was, for the pirate word, like swashbuckled, right? Like he, yeah, done. The last day of the party, exceptionally drunk, he tells seven assistants to go and get his wife so he can show off her beauty to the thousands of men and his court. So here's the thing. We don't know for certain, but it is highly unlikely that this was a dignified presentation of the queen. Vashti would have probably been expected to appear naked, at least. And at most, she might have been expected to do things in front of a very, very large crowd of men. Persia was a patriarchal society. So women could be educated. They could, be, uh, they could hold various positions in the workplace. But at the end of the day, women were property. Property of their husbands. Now, I wish I could say that this mindset died out with the wicked king Ahasuerus, but unfortunately, it is still prevalent in many modern societies, including, in many ways, our own. Now, I need to offer a commercial break. The Bible in no way affirms that women are to be viewed or treated as property. 
Rather, women must be treated as equals in essence and dignity and human personhood and as a unique reflection of the image of God himself. So if you're a Christian, commercial continuing, if you're a Christian male in this room and your theology is not what I just said, you need to ask God to rescue your heart. Because as Christian men, we are to lovingly, wait for it, sacrificially lay down our lives to lead and serve and protect and prize the women in our homes and churches and communities. This is what we see Jesus doing. And there is no less that he expects from his men. Now, as far as Queen Vashti is concerned here, we know from sources outside the Bible that she was no saint. Some could say, some actually did say, she was as ruthless as a hazardous. But on the night of this party, she rightly had had enough of being abused and treated as property. And in a way... She serves as this story's anti-hero. What I mean by that is there, are, there is a heroine-like feature to her, but she is not one to look at on the whole of life as a hero, okay? So knowing full well that her actions would lead to severe punishment, I mean banishment, she actually gets off kind of easy. She, was, she knew full well that her actions could lead to severe punishment Anyways, she tells Ahasuerus what no God ever wants to hear in front of thousands of male spectators looking upward at the elevated throne of Ahasuerus. Seven assistants come back into the room with Vashti's one word response to his summons. No. Now this is huge. And the ripple effect of this insubordination permeates the entire rest of the story. And for us readers, it will highlight one of, if not the major theme of the book of Esther. Here is the major theme of the book of Esther. When God is not in view, it does not mean he is absent. He is always weaving and working in every circumstance, in every season and situation of Queen Vashti's life, the Esther's, of yours and mine in this room. He is working for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Even pagan queens are at the disposal of a sovereign creator God who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Vashti's refusal to entertain the king and his men strikes a nerve, as we saw in chapter 1, that sends a shockwave through the literal postal system all across the country. In his bewildered rage, Ahasuerus summons seven of his top advisors, with, all with names that, well, I don't know if I pronounced them correctly. Uh, your guess is as good as mine. 
And in verses 13 through 22, he and his advisors, his legislators, they reason together that if Vashti gets away with saying no to a god, how likely will it be that our wives and all of the wives throughout the empire will start saying no? Now, do you, are, do you hear the insecurity in the room? I mean, what do you do when you're a king who's, who's feeling like he's a bit out of control of his household? You write a law that affects the entire nation. You legislate. You regain control. You write more laws. Vashti would be replaced as queen and banished from the presence of the king. Some sources say that she went on to be impaled. That was Ahasuerus' favorite way of doing things. But she's banished, and a law is written, and it's distributed to every province, 127 provinces, thousands of miles throughout the empire. The law is written as an example of what happens when women say no to their abusers. Doesn't it tell us something that Ahasuerus needed to write a law about this? I mean, in verse 8, he had to write a law. It was a king's edict about how much to drink. He wrote laws about everything. In fact, one commentator, he, he says this. He says, real power does not consist in regulating such detailed minutia. In fact, the tendency to regulate at this level actually is a sign of weakness and not power. We are dealing in this story with an insecure king. Ahasuerus' name is mentioned over 170 times. He is a main character who is not going to go away for all 10 chapters. But this is him. A womanizer, an abuser. The absolute essence of what it looks like to be in the gutter. And we saw, number two, the insubordinate queen. Vashti will no longer be in our story. And yet, point number three, we have, you know, where are the people of God in this? Point number three, an invisible people of God. They're they're invisible. There was no mention of the Jews whatsoever in chapter one. They cannot be seen, but it is not because... They are not there. Here's the sobering thing about our heroine Esther and Mordecai. They would have been in attendance at this party. Not only was Mordecai an employee of the king, you don't get to 70,000 people in attendance without everyone in Susa being there. And they lived in Susa. Plus, Judging from the vivid details that we're given in chapter 1 about this party, the author of this book, again, if it was Mordecai or another Jew, the author of this book was clearly an eyewitness. They saw these things. They penned these things. Not to mention, Esther and Mordecai are both Persian names. Mordecai is the name of a pagan god. Next week... When Esther prepares to enter the king's harem, spoiler alert, Mordecai urges her 
to continue keeping her Jewish identity under wraps, which she gladly does while she spends a year training for her one-night stand with the king. I'm not trying to throw shade at Esther. That is not my heart. She goes on to demonstrate extraordinary courage and faith. But if she and Mordecai provide any indication as to the state of God's people, the Jewish people in Susa, we would have to say the Jews are compromised right now at best, and at worst, they are apostate. Theologians have tried to answer, why isn't God's name in this story? And some have answered, because the people of God are so camouflaged into the fabric of paganism. The people of God in Susa, tell me if this sounds familiar. The people of God in Susa are indulging in all of the same pleasures The people of God in Susa are collecting all of the same products and treasures and material items. The people of God in Susa are engaging in all of the same distractions and forms of entertainment as the people that they are around you could really truly say of the people of God, the Jews in this book, they are in the world and of it. And you know where I'm going to go with that one. What about us? What about you? If someone were to come into your school, into your gym, into your workplace, would they immediately be able to identify the people of God? Not because you don't have a tattoo, not because you, you know, you wore a cut-off shirt. I'm talking about character level quality. At the very least, I'm talking about joy. I'm talking about refraining from laughing at the joke. I'm talking about caring enough to saturate that gym by going to each person and asking where they truly are, representing the Spirit of God in that room. Wearing the gospel on your sleeve. Or are you too distracted like everyone else looking at yourself in the mirror at the chin-up bar, honing your body? And I'm not just picking on Jim. That's at the workplace. That's, that's everywhere. And I'm, I'm part of it. I'm part of the problem. Right? Are the people of God, including yourself, are they invisible in your workplace? Are they invisible in your school or in your gym? And, and we can all of us say this. Well, sure, sure, sure. Look, look, we, everybody knows I'm a Christian. 
You know, I say that I'm a Christian. I'm surrounded by But do people see it? If you did not tell them that, would they know? Here's another thing that I observed about the Jews. I think that here's the motive as to why they were so willing to blend in. I mean, they were, they were willing to overlook serious character flaws in their leader, this king, giving their quiet allegiance to him because of the benefits that were given to them. He was a pretty lax king. Some people might have even said, he, was, he fears Yahweh. No. No. He was Yahweh among all gods, subservient to this God. The Jews traded their ultimate integrity for the comforts that were offered, offered by a twisted ruler. I cannot help but think about some of the men and women we get behind in the political world. He says he's a Christian. But look at his character. And yet, year after year after year after year, we put their names in our yard. We get behind that person. Because some of the things that they're about to offer us, if they get elected, those are going to be good for us and our ideals. Meanwhile, we have completely compromised. We have exchanged the convenience of having some of our rules enforced for allegiance to the empire rather than to Yahweh. Ahasuerus, like all of our leaders, is an absolutely flawed and fallen individual. Now, of course, our leaders, God's grace is alive and well. Some bend the knee to him. Hallelujah for that. But what we see in the book of Esther is an absolutely insecure and dreadful king that would have inspired the hearts of the remnant of Israel, the people of God, quietly holding on to the better king that has been promised. They would have quietly been calling out, where is our better king? And thousands of years later, that better king came. We talk about him and sing about him every single week. Jesus from the line of David himself. And Jesus doesn't force us to clean ourselves up to enter his palace. Jesus doesn't show off all the cool things he's bought with our tax money. Jesus left the true glory of his heavenly throne and he came down into the streets to become lowly like us. I mean, he had a throne that would make a Hazarus' throne look like a Fisher-Price throne and jesus lowered himself to us ahasuerus used his wealth to bribe the nobles jesus became poor to save the paupers ahasuerus used his subjects they were he used his subjects they were a means to an end jesus loves his subjects to the end and that justified the means going to the cross for the joy that was set before him Ahasuerus 
took the life of any of his subjects without thought. Jesus gave his life for his subjects according to the plan that he, the Father, and the Spirit had devised before the earth was made. Ahasuerus viewed his bride as a product to flaunt, exposing her nakedness and putting her to shame. Jesus views his bride as a person, a people to love, covering our nakedness and removing our shame. Ahasuerus' laws were written to suppress people. Jesus' laws were written to free them. Ahasuerus' glory was a life lived with countless treasures. Jesus' glory was that he was dirt poor, giving his life for an eternal treasure, you and I. Ahasuerus was faithful only to those faithful to him. Jesus is faithful despite our faithlessness to him. The better king has come. A better king than Ahasuerus has come. And church, my prayer is that his bride would not be invisible. He's coming back for a visible bride. And so, as we will see in the rest of this book, and as I pray for us, let faith rise among the faithless. Let's pray.